hello, hello, humans of Minnesota and of America and of the world, since we are podcast across the world. Hello, good morning. Welcome to Welly 2.0 Radio on AM 950. You're listening to me, your host, um, Ellie Krug, I am so thrilled to be back with you and with my friends on Monday morning. I know it's Monday, but, you know, there you go. But you get me on Monday morning. And and if you're listening and podcasts, you get me at any time in the world that you could possibly want. So welcome to Ellie 2.0 Radio, where we talk about idealism and the idea of making our world a better place. And about my work as a practical idealist. Today is an Ellie's Talking Head show. Yep, so no guests. Uh, just moi, you have me. Um, and you have been warned. So I wrote that down. I'm like, why would you write that down, Ellie? But I did. So um, the theme for this show is uh, about change, about significant societal change. How do you get it? What does it look like? And uh, some examples of it. So I want to start off with a very unusual topic, which would be beauty pageants. Yeah, I know. There you go. Specifically, the 1968 Miss American beauty pageant that was held in Atlantic City, New Jersey in September of that year, in September of 68. Um, For those too young to know or too old to remember, 1968 was a tumultuous year in America. We had the Vietnam War raging. We were just past uh, the Tet Offensive, which changed the whole tenor of the war. Student protests were going on in the country um, at college campuses all over America. Um, In the spring of 1968, Dr. King and Robert F. Kennedy, sadly, both had been assassinated. And as a consequence of that, there were very big riots in Washington, D.C., Detroit, and Baltimore. And in August of 1968, uh, the Democratic Convention in Chicago turned into a riot after Richard Nixon, excuse me, Nixon wasn't nominated at that uh, that, uh, uh, convention after Humphrey was uh, nominated. And then in early September of 1968, there was the Miss American pageant. Um, I'm sure that many thought... um, The pageant itself would be a calming influence that it would get us back to some degree of normalcy in America. After all, you can't get more American, more traditional than a beauty pageant, can you, right? Um, And then maybe throw in some baseball and apple pie along with a beauty pageant and all would be all right in America. Um, But I can assure you that come... Uh, 1968, much of America wanted normalcy. They wanted a rest. They wanted a rest from all of the stuff that was going on. And I'm sure that many thought a beauty pageant would provide that. Only, in September of 1968, there was a hitch. As the country was coming to grips with many changes, the Miss America pageant was stuck in time warp. It was stuck in a time warp where the pageant represented quote, traditional female values, and also where the uh, pageant contestants were exclusively white color only. In fact, when the Miss America pageant was launched in the 1930s, there was actually a rule that only white color contestants could compete in the pageant. That rule sort of faded away um, uh, by a couple of decades later, but they had no, but there were no contestants that were of any color other than white. Um, Earlier in 1968, the NAACP had approached the Miss American pageant, a Miss America pageant, um, and and talked to them about the need to integrate. Uh, The Miss America pageant responded saying that they had no finalists um, that were of color other than the white color. However, the Miss America pageant tried to respond. So, you know, we talk about putting Band-Aids on issues. And so what they did is they... Um, selected a couple of black color judges and they funded a scholarship to encourage contestants of color other than white. But again, in 1968, all of the contestants, all of the women in that Miss America pageant were white. Enter two black color men, an activist named Philip Savage and a Philadelphia entrepreneur named Jay Morris Anderson, who decided to create a beauty pageant for black color women with the idea that having 
that beauty pageant would take place on the same day and at the same time as the Miss America pageant. The idea further was to celebrate black color women as beautiful and to challenge the idea that whiteness defined beauty in America. We are, by the way, still challenging, still gripping with the issue of whiteness defining almost everything in America. Um, and uh, But this was a challenge, specifically as, as to the Miss America um, beauty pageant. Um, uh, and from the idea of a um, of, of a beauty pageant for black color women, the country got its first Miss Black America pageant. Um, as it turned out in 1968, because this was relatively ad hoc, in 1968 there were only 12 contestants for the uh, Miss Black America con- uh, uh, pageant. Um, uh, and uh, But that didn't deter them. And uh, if you go on, and, and this story, by the way, is coming uh, from a piece in uh, Medium Timeline, um, and I should make sure everyone knows it's a piece dated June 8, 2018, uh, and by Paige Welch. But if you go there, if you go to, to Medium Timeline and you find this, you'll see uh, that there's a, a picture of, of, of a dozen uh, of, of of a number of uh, black color women, um, and that picture is from the 72 uh, um, pageant for um, Miss uh, Black America, okay? But nonetheless, here we go. Um, i got to get back on track here. And so on the day of the pageant, which was the same day that Miss America white color uh, pageant was taking place, the, the 12 contestants for Miss Black America uh, rode in a motorcade down uh, the Atlantic City bo- boardwalk, the event was held at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, and it included, just like the, the white version of Miss America, they, it included the swimsuit, talent, uh, the talent, and the evening gown competitions. I know. I'm actually feeling pretty awkward about even saying any of these competitions, um, and I know that to some degree they continue even to today. So after, after that competition, there was a winner that was picked. Her name uh, was Sandra Williams. Um, and for uh, the and for her uh, talent competition, she performed an African dance. Uh, so, and she won. Now, uh, and and that was she Sandra Williams became the first Miss Black America in our country's history in 1968. Um, however, that wasn't the only thing happening in Atlantic City. There wasn't only just a Miss Black America. Uh, competition going on at the time of the Miss America white color competition. Um, remember, 68 was a big year for change, radical change, and some of that radical change was about women seeking to redefine themselves in society. Um, and so as both of the competitions, the pageants were going on, there were women outside the white color Miss America pageant marching as part of the, quote, women's liberation movement they were picketing and marching in Atlantic City, claiming that the white collar pageant, the white color Miss America pageant was sexist, classist, and even ageist. And they, on top of that, they denounced it as racist, which of course it was. Now, um, to be fair to the Miss America pageant, it did change. Uh, two years after 1968, in 1970, the first black color uh, woman competed in the Miss America pageant in 1984. So we're only talking 16 years after all of this. Uh, In 1984, Vanessa Williams was selected as the first black color contestant to be crowned Miss America. So that was pretty cool. Um, And since then, we've had a deaf Miss America, Heather Whitestone, in 1994. We've had an Indian American as Miss America, uh, Nina Davaluri, Davaluri, sorry, that was very bad, Ellie. And most recently, in 2016, we had our first openly lesbian contestant, Erin O'Flattery. Uh, she competed, but she didn't win. Um, but you know, eventually, someday, a lesbian is going to win 
Miss America, I, I hope I am still alive when that happens. I know, I just made some of you just smile when I said that. Um, so, and even though there has been um, integration of the Miss America pageant, uh, the Miss Black America pageant continues to this day. Uh, there was a little bit of an interruption in the 90s to the early zeros, but, um, but it's, it's strong and it's been happening. So, there you have it. Just as America, the country, has gone through profound change, so has its premier beauty pageant, which I would say is a, is a really pretty good thing, don't you, don't you think? Um, and, you know, uh, change is hard, of course, and the theme for this show is about change, about societal change. It does take a lot of work. It does take adjusting attitudes, and it does take changing the way that we look at the world changing the way that we think and changing the way that we approach things. When I come back from our break, I'm going to talk uh, about LeBron James' I Promise School because that is an example of what happens when you change the way that you think, you change the way that you approach things. And I can't wait to actually talk about that. So you've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio and AM 950. If you like what you hear, please visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at elliejkrug at gmail.com. I love hearing from listeners. And you know what? I have a monthly newsletter that goes out. The Ripple goes out right now, close to 7,000 people every month. Go to my website at elliekrug.com and you'll be able to sign up for it. Or you can email me and I'll get you signed up. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years. Celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. Hi, I'm Donna Minter, founder and executive director of the Minnesota Peacebuilding Leadership Institute. Please join us Wednesday, April 24th from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Riverview Theater in Minneapolis for LunaFest, our women's film festival for community peacebuilding. We'll show eight internationally curated short films by, for, and about women. We'll raffle off seven baskets filled with thousands of dollars worth of gift cards, merchandise, and service vouchers. This year, Minneapolis City Council Vice President Andrea Jenkins will be our honorary LunaFest chairwoman. $25 gets you eight short films and festivities. $50 gets all of that and the after party at the Riverview Cafe. The best part is... The proceeds benefit Minnesota Peacebuilding Leadership Institute programs and our Racial and Economic Equity Trainee Scholarship Fund. To learn more and purchase tickets, visit mnpeace.org and find LunaFest under events. That's mnpeace.org. See you there. Art lovers, it's time to celebrate, learn about, and collect local art at the St. Paul Art Crawl, running April 26th to 28th. The Spring St. Paul Art Crawl, presented by the St. Paul Art Collective, is a must-do experience that you will love. Over the weekend, you will have the chance to explore a wide variety of art while touring through local artist studios, lofts, and galleries. Up for purchase will be paintings, photography, pottery, sculpture, fiber arts, and more. The Art Crawl sprawls over 34 locations. Join the Art Crawl and discover outstanding art for your own. And when you buy local art, you're providing to artists so that they may continue to create the art we love. The Metro Transit is supporting the local art community too with free transit passes. Download your pass to ride buses and light rail for free during the Art Crawl. Be sure to get details at stpaulartcrawl.org. That's stpaulartcrawl.org. If you have a painting project, you should consider hiring Nick Slavic Painting and Restoration Company. We've been awarded nationally for craftsmanship, are highly professional, responsive, and fairly priced. If you feel overwhelmed by starting a painting project, we make it easy from start to finish. We move furniture, vacuum, sweep, dust, and put your home back the way we found it. There is a difference. Our professionalism sets us apart. Visit N-I-C-K-S-L-A-V-I-K.com. That's NickSlavic.com to learn more.
back on AM 950. Uh, LE 2.0 Radio, you're listening to me, your hostess with the mostest, Ellie Krug. Thank you for uh, hanging in and going on to uh, what is my B block, my B1 block, as it turns out. Um, and uh, for this segment, I want to update um, another segment that I did last year where I talked about the launching of LeBron James' I Promise School. Now, many of you know that LeBron James is a world-famous basketball player. Some say that he may be the best ever. Um, and last year, I talked about how he had, he had um, as a basketball player earning a gazillion dollars, had created the Le- LeBron James Family Foundation, and that he intended to set out to do good things in his hometown of Akron, Ohio. He wanted to create positive change. Remember, that's the theme in our show today about creating change, having making change happen. And so uh, last year I, I talked about that um, he had funded uh, what was a formerly closed public school um, and uh, funded the rehabilitation of that school to the tune of, I don't $2.6 million, $2 million, um, and that they had renamed the school the I Promise School. Now, this was not a charter school. This is still I Promise School is part of the Akron public school system. And that school then opened in July of 2018, and I think the piece I did was about July of last year. So uh, you may also recall from that prior segment, or if not, I'm telling you right now, that the school was populated with low-performing students. Um, these were students that were considered unredeemable, and, and even and whom teachers and administrators, even by their fourth grade year, had thought that the students were destined to fail. That is what the I Promise School is populated with. When the school opened last year, it had 240 kids. The goal is to get it to increase in numbers, but they're kind of trying to uh, crawl before they walk and walk before they run. Out of those 240 kids, 60% were black color students, 15% were English language learners, so that means English was not the primary language at home, and that 29% were considered special needs, special education students. Uh, This would not be, if you're going to go and start a school um, to demonstrate high performance, this would not be the population of students that you'd be wanting to have. But that's the whole idea about thinking differently um, with I Promise. Uh, these kids came from families that were at or below the federal poverty guidelines. And by the way, just everyone, listeners, do you know what the federal poverty guideline is, what you're considered to be poor in America right now? That is for a family of four. It's $25,750. So if you make $25,750 or less in your family of four, you're considered poor. And But, but if you make $25,800 you're not considered poor in America if you have a family of four. Uh, just think about that, okay? About how screwed up that is. But I, I depart. Let's get back to what you're talking about, Ellie. There are all kinds of questions about whether the I Promise School would be sustainable, whether it would, you know, just be another showboat experiment that would ultimately fail. Well, um, the results are in. From the first seven to eight months of operating, I promise, they started um, during the summer. So they thought differently and acted differently. And the results of the first seven to eight months of operation are now in. And they are very, very encouraging. And as reported by Erica Green um, in an April 12th New York Times piece. So I want to make sure that Erica Green gets credit here. 90% of the I promise students based on tests taken after seven or eight months, 90% of I Promise students meet or exceed personal growth goals in math and reading. That is unbelievable. In addition uh, to that, the I Promise students dramatically outpaced growth rates compared to other Akron schools and scored higher in growth rates nationally at the 99 percentile. So what that means is their growth rate, where they went from zero to wherever they are now in terms of, of, of improving math and reading skills, their growth rate beat 99 out of 100 schools. These are, remember, the unredeemable kids. 
Still, this doesn't mean that the students are reading or doing math at expected grade level. Okay? I mean, they're still behind. But it does mean that they are getting there. And more importantly, for purposes of why I'm talking to you, it means that I promise is doing some things really right. Why are there these positive results? Well, some of it may have to do with the culture created at the school. The culture is built on the habits of promise. Um, now, get this, okay? I'm going to read these habits of promise, all right? This is, apparently, the students need to memorize this. They talk about the habits of promise every day. So here are the, here are the five habits of promise. They all start with P's. The very first habit of, prov- of promise is perseverance. The second is perpetual learning. The third is problem solving. The fourth is partnering. And the last habit of promise is perspective. I just think that that is so incredible. Perseverance, perpetual learning, problem solving, partnering, and perspective. And those habits of learning, those habits of promise are intended to be instilled in these students as a way, as a roadmap for them to go forward. Sounds like good habits, not just for I promise students, but for any human. But I promise may also be working because it takes a holistic approach here. So it not only does it work with the students, but it provides resources to the parents of the students. It has a family resource center that provides assistance with getting your GED. Um, it, it provides work advice. It provides resources with legal and medical care professionals who come on site uh, to the school. Additionally, it has a food pantry where parents come and can choose from a whole host of bins food that they need to feed their families. Now, LeBron James, who, um, as a fourth grader, missed 83 days of school in Akron because of homelessness. LeBron James, um, our idealist here, who's working to make significant change, has said that the I Promise School is the coolest thing he's done in his life so far. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, And we need to give him great credit as an idealist who is literally changing lives. I think it's wonderful news that I Promise appears to be succeeding. We absolutely want it to succeed, and more than that, I want it to be replicated across America. I mean, come on, we can do this. Because helping all of those kids succeed means that those kids will be productive members of, com- of the community in the future. Um, so I will keep my eyes and ears open um, as to more, more things that happen at I Promise. Um, and I'll provide you updates as we go forward. I'm just so excited about this. I really am. And I just, I love it that we have a man who is rich who's famous, and who says, uh, I'm going to walk the walk. And that's not the only thing he does in Akron, but um, this one is the one that's, in my book, most outstanding. All right, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug. I hope you like what you're hearing. Let others know about the show. Will you do that? Um, I really, I'm trying to increase our base. So we'll be back after our break for the next segment. Thanks. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works, LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Supporting the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities has never been easier. You'll find an expansive list of local dining options at eatlocalminnesota.com. From classic American comfort food to authentic flavors from around the world. Experience cozy fireside dining at the Downtowner Woodfire Grill in St. Paul, specializing in fresh seafood, fire-roasted meats and pizzas, all cooked over an oak-burning fire, and salads and sandwiches, too. Join them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week, located at 253 West 7th Street with plenty of free parking, or online at downtownerwoodfire.com. 
Burger Moe's is the perfect neighborhood gathering spot before and after Excel Center events or anytime. Offering 20 fresh, never frozen burger varieties, more than 60 beers on tap, and happy hours twice daily. Burger Moe's is located at 242 West 7th Street in St. Paul with plenty of free parking and online at burgermoes.com. I'm Candy Braffle, publisher of the Twin Cities edition of Natural Awakenings Magazine and host of Green Tea Conversations, a new show for people who are on a journey to take responsibility for their health and play a more active role in their family's well-being. Join me every Sunday at 10 a.m. as I interview local experts who share the latest in natural holistic approaches in a fun and informative way. So grab a cup of tea and join the conversation as we awaken to natural health. Visit us at naturaltwincities.com. Hi, this is Charlie. Dad, please don't make me say this next line. Do you want to go to college? Okay. My dad is the radio host who's craved worldwide Matt McNeil. Outstanding. Yikes. My parents have me driving a Toyota Sienna because regardless of driving conditions, rain, snow, or sunshine, the Sienna handles great and gets me safely to where I need to be. My son and I each drive a Rudy Luther Toyota Sienna because we trust them. They're fantastic vehicles. Test drive one today at Rudy Luther Toyota, five miles west of Minneapolis on 394. Tom Hartman here letting you know how you can go solar with All Energy Solar, even way up north in Minnesota. Lots of people ask them, isn't Minnesota too cloudy for solar? No. The truth? For one thing, Minneapolis gets nearly as much sun each year as Houston, Texas. But it isn't just about how much sun you get. It's also about having access to great local incentive programs that make solar affordable. Learn what your options are to save with solar and visit allenergysolar.com today. With your AM 950 weather, this is Eric Nelson. Today, partly sunny skies with a high near 72. Tonight, a chance of showers and a low around 47. Monday, thunderstorms are possible with a high of 52 and a low around 39. Tuesday will be mostly sunny with a high of 59 and a low around 38. Whatever April showers bring this year, Standard Heating and Air Conditioning has you covered. Their triple saving sale offers $2,300 in savings on a new furnace and AC. Learn more about this great deal at standardheatingdeals.com. Standard Heating and AC, comfort you deserve. AM 950, this is Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 Radio. Hello, we're, our, our theme today Our theme today is about formending change, about big, significant change. And continuing with that theme, I want to talk about mechanisms for creating change and some other success stories about transforming whole societies, whole systems. So first, um, I want to talk about... Um, something that showed up on my radar. So this is a piece um, from the Greater Good blog. And if you've never visited that, um, it's a wonderful blog, Greater Good. Uh, this is a piece dated March 19th, uh, 2019 by Ziad Jalani. Ziad, Z-A-I-D, Jalani, J-I-L-A-N-I. Um, the piece is titled, What the Struggle for Gay Rights Teaches Us About Bridging Differences. And I want to talk about this. Uh, I've got a couple, another thing to talk about in this segment as well, about something in Canada. Our Canadian neighbors are so much brighter than us in many ways. But let's talk about this first, okay? So I want to talk about how the majority of the United States move from detesting and rejecting LGBTQ people to accepting them. Um, so let's consider how things were just 40 years ago. Um, in 1979, when I graduated from college. In 1979, a majority of Americans not only didn't approve of gay or le of the gay or lesbian, quote, lifestyle. Hmm, do you remember that? But the majority also thought that sexual relations between same-sex people should be illegal. That you should be arrested for that. It wasn't until 2003 that Lawrence v. Texas was, was decided where the Supreme Court struck down anti-sodomy laws, where in uh, many states um, it suddenly did become legal for same-sex couples to have sex. I mean, so that's 2003, okay? Um, 17 years after 1979, so in 1996, the vast majority of the country, three-fourths of America, felt that same-sex marriage shouldn't be permitted. 
Um, now, same-sex marriage didn't come about um, until, on a national basis until 2015 with the Obigerfell uh, decision. Um, so in contrast to the way things were in 79 and in 96, everything is flipped. Today in America, three-fourths of Americans feel that sexual relations between same-sex people are acceptable and shouldn't be criminalized. And 67%, so more than two-thirds, of Americans accept the idea of marriage for same-sex couples. How did this profound change in American attitudes towards LGBTQ people happen? And how did it happen in such a short period of time? I mean, remember, we are this year um, celebrating uh, the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. When before in 1969, uh, the idea idea that America, three-fourths of America would approve of people, same-sex relationships, having loving relationships compared to 50 years ago, I mean, it's just astronomical in terms of how the country has turned. How has that happened? And more importantly, how can we replicate that kind of change as a process of building, uh, bridging other kinds of differences? As Ziad Jelani reports, researchers looked at 4.4 million test results from Harvard's implicit association test. That's a test that measures unconscious and explicit bias around race, age, disability status, LGBTQ status, and other stuff. They looked at 4.4 million bits of data between the years of 2007 and 2016, and what they found was that over that time, Americans were, Americans were becoming less biased against race and LGBTQ people. Um, I know, in 2019, what I just said, particularly when I talk about race, you're like, I don't believe that, Ellie, with the way the country's going right now. I understand that. But you also remember, most of the time, the things that you hear around race are things that are negative. We don't get the positive stories about race in our country. If we did, you know what? You need to go um, subscribe to my Ripple. Um, it's not a subscription. You just have to sign up. Uh, rip my Ripple um, newsletter because I do share good stories about race there. So researchers believe that there are two factors involved here. Um, why the country has shifted positively on race and LGBTQ status. And I'm just going to only talk about LGBTQ here. So so there are two factors involved in that shift. The first is that more and more people are coming out every day and more and more people as LGBTQ. And that means more and more people are coming in contact with LGBTQ people. And I know this firsthand. So when I train on what it means to be transgender, remember, that's why you're hearing a dude's voice, but I'm really Ellie Krug, and I certainly look like it. Um, the the reason uh, when I train, I always ask who here, what percent, you know, who here in the room knows somebody who's LGBT, you know, gay or lesbian? And almost always, all the hands in the room go up. When I ask about that in terms of how many people know somebody's transgender, you know, the the percentage is somewhere between 20 and, and, and sometimes 50% of the room about no transgender people. But again, the same phenomenon is going to happen. There are going to be more and more trans people showing up. So greater contact between straight and LGBTQ people means greater familiarity. And it helps straight people to understand that LGBTQ people are just like everyone else. This is also been perpetuated or furthered by how media depicts LGBTQ people. Um, you know, in terms of seeing people on television or on, on TV shows or on um, in the films and stuff like that, uh, uh, let's just stick with TV, Ellie. Um, uh, it went from no, there were no LGBTQ characters on television, on media, you know, going back to the 1970s, uh, to last year in 2018, 8.8% of all TV show characters were portrayed as LGBTQ. Um, and the same thing exists as it relates to racial people. Let me just throw that as it relates to race, okay? So I remember, I was alive, I remember it was a big deal when the Julia TV show, which features prominently a, a black woman as a character, that it was that 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 show came out in 1968. I oh, remember I was talking about 68 with the um, uh, the first Black America pageant. Um, 
Julia came out in 1968. That was a big deal. And now on television, of course, we have more and more um, characters that are of colors other than the white color. Okay, the second factor in getting uh, LGBTQ acceptance in this country was that the elite, this is um, uh, the word that was used in uh, uh, Zayed's piece, but I call them tribal leaders, are encouraging tribe members to be more open. Um, He cites the example of Ohio Senator Rob Portman, Republican senator there, who opposed same-sex marriage. Then, um, after his son, Rob Portman's son, came out as gay, Portman changed his opinion about same-sex marriage. He changed his mind about it and said that's because of his son. So there was an experiment where listeners told a story about marriage equality. Um, first, that, that somebody was promoting it who wanted it, who was, who was advocating it, was just a concerned citizen. They're reading this scenario to people um, and engaging whether reading the scenario changed the opinions of people. And when the scenario was said that it was just a concerned citizen advocating for marriage equality, attitudes in the room didn't change. But when the scenario was changed and it was said that, that, that it was a religious leader advocating for marriage equality, listeners to that scenario um, were indicated they'd be more likely to vote for marriage equality. So it's all about who's leading and who's saying it as leaders. Um, so uh, the takeaways here are that increased frequency of contact, personal and in societal depictions, and having our leaders instill a positive messaging um, are things that create a greater willingness to be open and accepting of people who are other, quote, unquote, other from us. Conversely, of course, negative depictions um, and denigrations of people who are other by our leaders increases prejudice, and we know that, and I'm not going to dwell on that any further. This is not rocket science, by the way. I mean, I think that we could all pretty much readily understand that. Um... But it's hard to do because of the way humans are. And as Saad uh, Sayad uh, Giuliani, I'm sorry so much about not getting the name right, um, notes that we still have challenges with ageism and with persons with disabilities. All right, that's the first success story about how change happens significantly in society. The, success, the second success story is about transforming a society as it relates to um, poverty. And this is um, noted in an April 4th editorial by David Brooks um, in the New York Times. The editorial is titled Winning the War on Poverty, but not winning it in the U.S., winning it in Canada. And Brooks highlights about how Canada started to tackle poverty 15 years ago with a pilot project first involving six cities. Today, Canada's poverty elimination program involves 72 regional networks covering 344 towns. Through this, the Canadians have been, in the last 15 years, have been able to reduce the poverty rate in Canada by 20%, and they lifted 825,000 Canadians out of poverty. How did they do this? First, they did it by redefining what success looks like. Um, They actually talked to the people who were poor, and they involved business leaders and nonprofits. But they did something that was significant because they changed the way they looked at the world as it related to poverty. So here's uh, from Brooks. I'm quoting him now, uh, quoting about what um, the Canadians did. Quote, they spent a year learning about poverty in their area, talking with the community. They launch a different kind of conversation. First, they don't want better poor. They want fewer poor. Think about that. I just interjected that. They don't want better poor, they want fewer poor. And then Brooks goes on to say, that is to say, their focus is not how do we give poor people food so they don't starve. It is how do we move people out of poverty? Second, they up their ambitions. How do we eradicate poverty altogether? Third, they broaden their vision. What does a vibrant community look like in which everybody's basic needs are met? Again, They don't want better poor. They want fewer poor. Isn't that radical? (laughs) And so the Canadians, you know, um, 
uh, among things that they did, they didn't apply apples to apples. Um, they um, each each town um, has different challenges, and um, and and so those towns each have different strengths, and so they didn't treat each town with the same kind of formula, which Americans really want to do. They also got rid of um, of egos. And they opted for collaboration. They had, and, and, and this is about attitudinal change. That we don't need to have egos in this. That, we, that, we, that we're all in this together. And so they busted all of these different silos where people have their individual egos. And they said, we're not going to work out of silos. And lastly, they realized that you can't uh, get people out of poverty by paying them next to nothing. So in Canada, in these in these all these communities, they raised the minimum wage and then they expanded the national health care benefit. This was all pretty bold thinking to create fundamental change. Again, it was not rocket science. It was how you do things a smart way by just simply sitting down and talking and getting rid of the darn egos. Can you imagine us doing that in America? I don't know. I think that we really could if we really attempted to put our minds to it. So, I don't know. I love the Canadians, and I think that they are not afraid to think outside the box in many, many ways. And we Americans, we allow our ego to get in the way, and of course we won't go and watch and see what they do. And we won't give them credit, because of course they're Canadians and not Americans. Think about that. All right, well, when we come back from our break, I will do my C block, and uh, and then that'll be it. We'll have a show in the can. So, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on LA 2.0 uh, Radio, and uh, we'll be back in a second. Thanks. She could hear the highway breathing. She could see an Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. The Downtown or Woodfire Grill in St. Paul is the perfect choice for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Offering daily fresh seafood specials, fire-roasted meats, exquisite pizza, and half-price bottles of wine on Mondays and Tuesdays, except on Excel Energy event nights. Once you experience their cozy fireside dining, extensive wine list and bar, you'll be back for more. Gift certificates and private dining room for parties available. Located at 253 West 7th Street with plenty of free parking or online at downtownorwoodfire.com. Due to unprecedented corporate media consolidation, roughly six corporations now dominate the media. For democracy to work, people need easy access to independent and diverse sources of news and information. I'm Amy Goodman. Join me and Juan Gonzalez as we speak with international journalists, grassroots leaders, peace activists, artists, academics, and independent analysts. Democracy Now! offers real, independent news and analysis. Catch Democracy Now! every weekday at 2 p.m. on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. At Better Futures Minnesota, we transform the lives of men and support Minnesota's environment by working towards zero waste. Our approach reaffirms each man's dignity and supports self-sufficiency. Better Futures Minnesota is a work training model. Through our reuse, retail warehouse, and supervised work crews with specialized in residential and commercial building deconstruction, property maintenance, appliance recycling, and janitorial services, we demonstrate ways to employ hire-to-employ men on a pathway to independence. Hire our work crews at BetterFuturesMinnesota.com. Hi, this is Ken Hagland, host of Living Healthy and Aging Well, inviting you to listen to our new show airing on Saturdays from noon to one, where we talk about your health and your life and provide insights to living and aging well. Each week, we provide answers to important questions regarding health care, elder care, end-of-life care, and caregiver support to help you and your loved ones plan for the future and enjoy your highest quality of life today. Please join us every Saturday from noon to one for Living Healthy and Aging Well. Hi, Matt here from Green Home Doctors. We've just experienced the worst ice dam season in years. If you had ice dams, it is critical to fix the cause so this doesn't happen again and create damage to your ceiling or worse. 
Contact Green Home Doctors to analyze your heat loss. We have specialized equipment that allows us to diagnose where the heat loss is occurring and make it possible to remedy the issue effectively. Visit GreenHomeDR.com. That's GreenHomeDR.com. This is Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 Radio. Um, we are in my C block now. Remember, the theme for the show is about change, about big change. And I'm going to talk um, just for a few minutes here about big change in my life. So, um, you know, in this segment, I talk about a lot of different things. And many times I talk from the heart. Um, and many times I'm just simply talking to you directly, human, who's listening right now. So for me, I'm coming up on a personal anniversary that is about change. Um, so um, next week, on April 30th, it will be 15 years since I left my soulmate, Lydia, in search of me to go out in the world and find, find me Ellie Krug, the human you listen to every week whom you're listening to right now. You know, and um, I don't want to dwell a whole lot on it, but I do want to talk a little bit about what happens when you engage in change. Lydia and I had been together for 32 years. We were, soul we were soulmates. There's no question about that. And we started in high school. I was a freshman. She was a sophomore. For all of those 32 years, I knew that there was something different inside me. I didn't know quite what. Um, it wasn't crystal clear to me. But I knew that there was stuff inside me that made me different than most people. Um, some of that different <clears throat> and some of that stuff was about an attraction to all things that were feminine and eventually an attraction to men um, as well as to women. Still, for much of those 32 years, I thought that all of that would go away as I got older or as I transitioned to different parts of my life. When those things did not go away, I then went to therapy to find a hook, to find a way, a mantra, to stay married because I so loved Lydia. And you can get more about this if you want by uh, going and, and reading my book, Getting to Ellen, Memoir About Love, Honesty, and Gender Change, if you have an interest. I will never forget the bittersweet feeling that I had on the morning of April 30th. Lydia and I had agreed that I would stay until that morning. Um, and, and early on that morning, um, while she was still in bed, I left the house with two suitcases. I put them in my car, started the car up, and then back down the driveway. As I did that on April 30th of 2004, I had no real idea of what laid ahead. All that I knew was that for <clears throat> several years by then, there had been a voice in my head literally yelling at me every day, sometimes a hundred times a day, telling me that I needed to have my own life that I needed to be me, that I needed to be this different human than what I had grown up as. Now, part of that yelling was about idealism. You see, I had always been an idealist. I talk, and you probably ad nauseum at this point, listeners know that Dr. King and Robert F. Kennedy were my heroes. <clears throat> they inspired me to go and be a lawyer and I had intended to try and change the world on the front end of my life, but I got sidetracked by that stuff that was inside me. But the idealist was always there. I could never exercise it because it's hard to exercise idealism if you aren't living authentically. It is. And I spent a lot of energy, a lot of emotional energy, just trying to stay a man and trying to stay married to Lydia, who I love so very much. But 
I did drive down that driveway. I did find the guts somehow to leave. It's very hard to leave somebody when you love them. Very hard to say that you're going to love yourself more than you're going to love someone else. But I did do that. I did. I mean, I didn't do it alone. I had therapists, a therap- I had multiple therapists helping me, and I had some very great support from friends. But I did it. And as a consequence of being brave um, and self-sacrifice, I mean, it was, um, you know, it was self-preservation. There's no doubt about it. I don't think I'd be talking to you right now had I not taken that step. I don't think I would be walking this earth, frankly. But as a result of that, wonderful things have happened. I've gotten to be me, Ellie Krug. It took five years after that for me to transition genders. You know, I did write a book that others find inspiring. I did found a nonprofit that helped low-income people find lawyers. You know, I go and train across America now, talking about human inclusivity and the need to give compassion to others and to ourselves. I would never have been, or on this radio show, here I am, I would never have been able to do any of that had I not been willing to be brave to be brave enough to change, to change my trajectory, to change the way that I was, and to take a big, deep breath and say, okay, I'm going to go forward. I'm going to hope that it all works out. I'm very lucky, everyone. I want you to know that. I am. I'm so incredibly lucky, and I have great privilege in many ways. I realize that. And I'm grateful to the many people that have supported me. But I'm also grateful to me that I was willing to believe in me to take that chance to change. Okay, well, there's another show. Um, You've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, um, one of the relatively few transgender radio hosts in the world. I had to squeeze that in on AM 950. If you like what you hear, um, please go visit my sponsor, Brending Electrolysis, because Bev Brending does great work. I need to thank my um, producer here, Brett Johnson. God, Brett, I forget your name. No, I love you, Brett. You know that you do great work. And listeners... I love you. I really appreciate everything that you do. I, I, re, I meet listeners on the street, and you come up to me, and you give me a big hug. So thanks so very much for that. I'll be back next week with another show and a guest. Take care. Bye. Bye.